You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. HuntStand is the most popular and functional mobile hunting app on the market. With a variety of base maps to choose from, satellite imagery that is updated every month, the ability to check the weather, no property information, and even catalog your trail cam picks, HuntStand even gives you the ability to import pins and location markers from other mobile apps. Visit HuntStand.com or download wherever you download your apps. Enter discount code SN20 at checkout for 20% off. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin-cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. The Houndsman XP Podcast Network is taking you on the journey. Your host, Master Trainer Heath Hyatt, will combine his decades of experience as a houndsman and as a professional trainer that will light the path forward and make our packs lighter on this lifelong journey to become better hunters and houndsmen. There are no shortcuts, so lace up those boots and grab a dog leash. The journey begins now. Hey guys, the journey on Houndsman XP is teamed up with Go Wild. Go Wild is a social media platform that was made for hunters by hunters. If you guys and gals have listened to any of the other podcasts that I've been on, you know what a huge outdoor enthusiast I am. I love being in the woods with my hounds. There's nothing more exciting than hearing the thunder of a spring gobbler. I love fishing for trout in the brooks and the streams, and I love being on the river chasing that ever-elusive fish of a thousand cast, the muskie. Go Wild is the place that I can post my trophies, hunts, and memories without being censored. But Go Wild is so much more than that. It's a place to share your stories, sharpen your skills, hone your tactics, get gear reviews, and shop for anything outdoors. When you make a purchase from the Go Wild store, everything is free shipping. Anything that you purchase anywhere in the country, no matter how big, free shipping. So go down to the show notes, click on the Go Wild link at the bottom, and get signed up today. And let's go wild. On today's episode of The Journey, we're going to travel back up 81 and across 66 to that wonderful place called Nova. And for the people that aren't from Virginia, that don't know, Nova is Northern Virginia. So we are back up with Ariel Paldunas, and we're going to pick her brain a little bit today about the tone. We had a lot of questions and a lot of um, comments 
that come in when we done our last um, series on on the podcast. So we're going to clarify it. We're really going to break it down today and make sure there's no confusion because that seemed to be the issue with um, with the last podcast. I don't know if everybody's using the right application or trying to use too many applications for the tone, and you've got to pick one or the other. Um, if not, then it doesn't paint a clear picture for the dog. So we're going to break that down today, and if we have enough time, we're going to get into cap driving, or dri- cap, yeah, capping drive. Um, we have got a lot of questions about um, calling dogs off the tree and stemming them. So we're going to break it down from the police side, and we, we call it a call-off because our dog engages the decoy or the suspect, and that they're in their highest high stimulation that they can be in and we have to be able to cap that get them in a clear mind and then bring them back to us so we're going to break that down and explain the differences and why it's easier for us to do the police dogs that way than it is for our hounds so how are things up in fredericksburg today ariel still hot um (laughs) you know hot and humid sweaty hoping it's going to cool down soon it, it makes for tough hunting when you can't hunt much past the late morning otherwise it's too hot but uh otherwise pretty good yep and have you we have you been out any uh just on saturday mm-hmm. um we uh had a long day on saturday so we uh we rested and let the dogs rest on sunday yeah i don't think you know some people the group that I hunt with, I'll just I'll just um, pick them apart because I like to do that. <laughs> uh, the group that I hunt with, man, they will run them dogs in the ground. And we all know for us, I mean, we've got to be able to recuperate. You know, you take the dogs out the first couple times during the first of the season. And, you know, they get tired and sore just like we do. Um, you know, good food, hydration um, does wonders. For a dog and then you know a couple of days of rest um, i try not to hunt every day um, for the first two or three which I, I i don't anyway but if i could i would probably hunt three or four days and i would bust that up and, you know if i put in a hard race like you did saturday you know i'd probably give my dogs a day or two off um mm-hmm. you know the guys ran really hard yesterday and you know they're going to lay their dogs up for you know, a couple of days and come back out midweek. Um, it just, it just helps the dogs um, progress faster, but yeah, yep. I get it. it. It's tough because we want to hunt <clears throat> every Saturday and Sunday because we have to work most Monday through Fridays. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, it, we also look at, we were both pretty tired and sore and, <laughs> you know, the dog's feet aren't really conditioned and, uh, yeah, we just don't want to beat them up this early in the season. Plus it's so hot. Right. Uh, I'd rather not risk having heat-related injuries and ruining the rest of our season if we're trying to recuperate a dog. So just trying to make good decisions. Yeah, and yeah. I I was happy resting on Sunday because I had I had a long walk on Saturday. Did you wear blisters on those feet? I, somehow I managed to not wind up with any blisters. I was even break I was breaking a new pair of boots, thinking it was going to be a pretty easy day. We weren't going to go too many miles and. Luckily, I had my my other pair of boots too, so I changed halfway through. Um, somehow, I managed to avoid blisters, but I 
have some bruising on the bottom of my feet. <laughs> it, yeah, I know your feet's not conditioned for. I mean, it takes me a while to to get yep. that. And I mean, of course, and I wear good break- wool socks. And go ahead. Yep. I was saying breaking in new boots. You know, I I'm thinking like, oh, I'll take it easy and do you know five six miles at a time. No. What, <laughs> I seen you post on something. What boots are you wearing now? Because I, I know that um, <clears throat> Lauren had asked, uh, had posted about, you know, what women's boots or what boots um, the the ladies are wearing. Mm-hmm. What, what do you so, got? So last season, I wound up wearing my ultras almost the entire season. Mm-hmm. And I was, I started off just wearing like the low Lone Peaks. And they're, they're like a minimalist hiking shoe. They're not made for hunting. Um, and then I sprained my ankle in July doing something unrelated to hunting and hiking. Um, so I needed more ankle support, uh, later in the season when, when it started getting icy and cold. So I got, um, the mid ultras that are just a little bit higher, but I mean, they're, they're like a cushiony sneaker Mm -hmm. and they're, they don't really have much support. Mm -hmm. They were supposed to be waterproof. They're not, (laughs) um, and, you know, they just don't really hold up. So I thought I really need to get something better. So I got a pair of uh, Schnee's yep. Kestrels Yep. because mm-hmm. um, I wanted something lightweight, but still have more support and some waterproofness. And uh, they had really good reviews. I I think I'm so used to having a like really grippy minimalist shoe mm-hmm. that's really cushiony that I was not happy with them on Saturday. But I also think I need to get a good insole and go a little bit easier on the, the break-in process. So we'll see. I'm, you know, everything I read said you need about 30, 40 miles on them before they start to break in. So, mm-hmm. um, I did about 20, uh, a quarter. <laughs> yeah. Well, I wore my ultras for part of that. So I did about uh, a quarter of that on, on Saturday. So, um, we'll see if I can get them broken in and get them. I really just want them for the, the fall and the winter. So, yeah, I have a pair of those myself. Mm-hmm. The Kestrels. Uh, yep. Mm-hmm. I bought oh, them. Okay. Nice. I bought them. I was wearing Solomon. Um, of course, we get those at work, and I were wearing. I was wearing those, and again, they say they're waterproof. They're not. Um, I ended up having to get in the creek multiple times a year before last, and it just broke them down. Like, it, and even though I have a, a boot dryer and everything, it just broke them down. So I bought a pair of those. Um, for the hiking boots, because that's basically what they are, um, and I I I really like them. Like I have to say that um, unless it's hunt like December, that's what I'm wearing. I even wear them when I do my tracking schools and when we're doing tracking for. St- I mean, I wear them all the time, and mm-hmm. I do like them. I, and they are a little bit hard on the bottom of my feet at at the beginning. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, like I said, I wear a good, um, wool sock. I don't wear a liner with those, but I wear a good, a good sock. And mm-hmm. I, 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 I would highly recommend them. Um, I have went through thousands of boots, not really, but I've went through hundreds of boots. Um, I have tried about everything, um, I used to be a big Danners fan, and then, of course, Danners are not the boots they used to. I still have some of the original elk hunters that that I have. Um, of course, Rockies, I can wear the soles off of those in about um, three months, like literally. 
Um, go go on down the list. I mean, I have bought so I bought me a pair of the Chanae's, and I bought a pair of the Kinetrex, and I have the mm-hmm. uh, Kinetrex mountain guides, and they're uninsulated. Um, took me a while to break those in, um, but once I got them broke in, they are no, another phenomenal boot. Um, I wear those in the winter. Um, I like them. Um, I like mm-hmm. them. Some of my some of my other buddies have the Zamberlins. Um, I have some friends that has the I don't know if I'm pronouncing it right the Crisps. They mm-hmm. have those. I've got uh, one of my good friends that hunts with me and fishes with me a lot. He's he bought the Chenays just like my Kenetrex. We can't really tell the difference in them, so I would say both of those boots are pretty com- comparable. But mm-hmm. I have learned as I've gotten older that you have to take care of your feet. Because if yeah. you don't, you can't go nowhere. And the year two, two years ago, three years ago, I had uh, plantar fasciitis. And, mm-hmm. I like, it got me down. And the the foot doctor told me I had to get two shots, which, like, to killed me um, before I could finally get over it. And that's mm-hmm. when he told me, he's like, Heath, you got you to gotta get, you know, good insoles and good boots. And if you're not wearing this, then you're not doing that. And I took his advice, and that's when I started doing the research, and I, that's when I ended up buying the the Chinese first. Um, yeah. But, yeah, I like them. I do. So I'm, I'm hoping that, you know, I, I really felt like they were beating up the bottom of my feet, and I was uh, I had to climb down some pretty slick, steep rocks, and I wound up just going down on my butt because they were really slippery. But um, I, I just don't think I've they had no break in time. I wasn't anticipating having to, uh, go the places I had to go on Saturday. And mm-hmm. so I'm, I, today I ordered a pair of insoles and, uh, I'm just going to try and I might even carry my other boots in my pack cause they're super light. So that way if, uh-huh. if I get in a situation again, I could just switch, switch them, them out, out if I need to. Cause yeah, I mean, I, I trust all the reviews and I trust what you're saying. I just think it's, you know, I have to give it time to break them in. Well, and it's funny, but and your feet may be different, you know. So for the the ones that you have, the Chanae's, I didn't have a break in period with them. I put them on and went. Now mm-hmm. the Kenetrex, now it took me a couple weeks to get them where I felt, and they're they're stiffer. They're stiffer. They have um, really an- good ankle support. Um, they've got good heel support. The the toe rocks when you walk, so it takes a little bit mm-hmm. of less energy. It took me a while to break those in. Now the ones that you have, I literally just put them on and went. So I'm, you know, I'm curious to what the difference is, unless it's just just our, you know, our feet and leg makeup is different, and that's causing it to, to, to yeah. wear different for each of us. I wonder if I've just gotten used to, you know, I, I feel like the ultras are cloud shoes. Like, they're so light. Them and, like, mm-hmm. the, yeah, and the um, Hoka Oneones, the, they're just so cushiony mm-hmm. that, um, you know, maybe I've just gotten tender-footed. <laughs> so. <laughs> well, there's your guys' um, footwear yeah. <laughs> uh, breakdown for the day is there you go. All right. So let's, let's, oh, well, let's run over our, you know, our season's been in now. I'll give you guys a quick um, breakdown of what I've been doing. Um, I feel like that I've, I'm very blessed. Um, the dogs have, I mean, knock on wood and it may turn around on me the next time I go out, but 
Uh, Monday, um, struck a bear. Um, I had two dogs take the track. I didn't get anything else in um, just because of the direction it was traveling, and they went out of here, and, and they run that thing for a long, long time. And it ended up crossing the road. Ariel, actually down there where I think it crossed with us on the very bottom of the area mm-hmm. we was hunting. And so I picked those two dogs up because it was extremely hot. And I put two other dogs in, um, being Spook and Hart, Houdini and Kate. Kate, actually, they was the two dogs that brought it way around the mountain and down and crossed. And um, I put Spook and Hart and Hot Rod put a couple dogs in, and they were able to take it up the other side of the mountain and up up um, a good ways back up the mountain and ended up getting it treed. So the first day for uh, I mean, I was like, I was really um, excited that I was able to do that. We were, we were able to do that. Tuesday, just flat out got outrun. It happens. Um, I didn't hunt Wednesday, Thursday because I had to work. And then Friday, um, I was very fortunate. Uh, I got out early and the dog struck. And they was um, the track was above the road about two hundred yards, so they had to go find it. Um, when they got up there and found it, they ended up going back out the mountain. Um, they actually crossed in behind me and ended up going off the mountain and treed, treed that bear pretty quick. Um, I was surprised. And then Saturday morning, pretty much the same thing, was in a different area. Dog struck, um, trying to let my young dogs, um, I've got a an older dog that a good friend of mine, BB, has let me, he's generously let me take. And um, so I let him, he, he started it. I put my young dogs right with him, right off the rig. And they just kind of took it from him. And I put two other young dogs in there and they took it down the creek and ended up treeing it relatively quick. Um, so, yeah, I, that's kind of been my season. Today, we, I, didn't do any good today except blowing the um, U-joint out of my truck and spending four hours trying to find <laughs> parts to do it, uh, which is a cluster. And we ended up having to mix and match it, and I had to take it to the garage this evening because it's not right. It's vibrating in the rear end, and I don't like that. But So I feel very fortunate. I think um, either the Lord or the bear feel sorry for me because I'm fattening out of shape, and they're not, <laughs> they haven't made it too rough on me this year already. So, yeah, that's a rundown of us, so... Let's get into business. Let's talk about the tone, and let's talk about the recall and the tone for correction. So I know that you and I have went over the recall. So, Ariel, I'm going to let you break that <clears throat> break that down pretty quickly and mm-hmm. just kind of rewind and um, reset about the tone and the recall, and then we'll we'll kind of take it step by step after we do that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think the, the best way to try and explain it so that I don't get too technical is trying to, tr- to try and make an analogy. Um, when you're using the tone for the recall, the tone is a signal to the dog. So you have to teach them what that signal means. Um, so I think when we had discussed this, I was talking about uh, the stop, a stoplight and, when you're a child and you don't really know much about the world around you, 
you don't know that red typically means stop and green typically means go. They're just colors for you that, you know, you might have crayons and you, you know, might, you might play with toys of different colors. Um, but as you get older and you ride around in the car with your parents or you're preparing to get your driver's license, you start to learn that when you see a red light, that means stop. And when you see a green light, that means go. And if you obey those signals, there are consequences. So if I stop when the light is red, then uh, there'll be good consequences. I won't get into a wreck. I won't have the person next to me yelling at me, telling me to stop. I won't, I won't get a ticket for running a red light. Um, if I go when the light turns green, people don't beep at me. I get to go and move towards my destination. Um, so if you learn the meaning of that signal and then you do the appropriate behavior when you see that signal, you will have good consequences happen to you. And then, you know, you can apply that as you go on in your life, you see red, that means to you stop, don't touch. Um, you know, we use the color red to, to mean no. Um, so when we're bringing that back to the tone with the dogs, the tone when they first hear it has no meaning to them. If you have a stable dog that's, that's not startled by noises, I mean, some dogs might be startled by it. That's why we talked about mm -hmm. introducing it in a way that it doesn't startle them. But for the most part, that tone should be neutral to them. They hear tone and they don't know what it means the first time they hear it. <clears throat> we have to give it meaning by associating it with consequences. So that's what we were talking about, putting them on leash, hitting the tone button, bringing them into you, giving them a treat. So now they start to understand when I hear that tone, if I come back to you, I get something good. And then we extend that to a longer leash using the tone around distractions. So they get to learn in all these different contexts, whether I'm close to you, whether I'm far away, whether there's other dogs around, whether there's people or things to sniff. When I hear that tone, if I come back to you, I get something good. And we enforce that by keeping the leash on them and bringing them to us with the leash. All right. Let me, let me stop, so, right, let me stop you right yep. there. So I know what you're, you're saying, but I just want to paint a clear picture. When you talk mm -hmm. about distractions, because we use distractions in our, our, the law enforcement side a lot. We start testing the dogs. We start adding those distractions to see how obedient to say they are. So mm -hmm. you would, and I just want to make sure, you would never take that lead off or that long line or that check cord or whatever it is until they are solid on the recall of the tone with distractions, i.e., like you said, dogs or food or, you know, like for me, cattle out here in the field or horses up here on the other side of me or the neighbors driving up the road because that was something I've had to work through. Mm -hmm. Does that sound yep. right? Yep. So I don't, mm -hmm. I don't want to leave it to chance that if I press That's that right. tone button mm -hmm. and I don't have a leash on that the dog is going to do the wrong thing. I want to make sure that I can control those variables mm -hmm. and I can make sure that when I take that leash off, I am confident that I have done the groundwork and I've prepared the dog to listen to me no matter what's going on. Mm -hmm. Or I have a way, even if I take the leash off, 
I have a way to enforce it otherwise, um, which we can get into how you can enforce it. But um, I, I don't want it to be I press the tone and the dog gets to make the wrong decision because uh, right. then they're just learning that I can listen if I feel like it. But if I don't feel like it, nothing happens. So when do we add the stem, the E? So when I feel like I have thoroughly, I call it proofed the behavior. Mm -hmm. And I have, you know, my dog might recall great in my yard, but I need to take them out into the woods. I need to take them uh, to a field where there's different things to smell. I need to take them around other dogs. So once I've proofed that behavior and train the dog with the leash on to come to tone in all of these different environments and all of these different contexts, then I will enforce it with the stim. Now I feel like I've, I've laid the groundwork. I have taught the behavior. I've been fair to the dog. I haven't tried to, I haven't made my expectations too high. So now I know if I press the tone and they ignore me, I, it's fair for me to enforce it with stim. Mm -hmm. So you're pairing answer. the stem, yes, for me, yep. yes. But you're pairing the stem <clears throat> with the correction, which is not listening. Yeah. Yep. So I, and I, at this point, I still like to have a leash on because I don't want to press the stem button and have the dog do something I don't expect. So Run, freeze, yes. Yep. All the, Good, you know, the fight or flight Run back syndrome. to the kennel, go, mm -hmm. yep run back to the kennel, go under the truck, stop and stare at me. So I have, I have long leashes. I have ones that are up to 30 feet. Um, beyond that, it gets a little cumbersome to, to manipulate a leash that's that long. But, um, you know, I press the tone and the dog says, eh, I know what that means. You've taught me what that means, but I've got something better to do right now. And I don't feel like listening to you. Then I back it up with stim and leash pressure. So now there's a consequence for ignoring the tone. They've already learned if they listen to the tone, they get something good. Now they're choosing to ignore it. So now I say, okay, if you ignore it, there's going to be some discomfort associated with it. And then the, the leash backs up the stim. So the dog learns that the only way to get the stim to stop is to come to me. And I'm not using a high level of stim that right. is stressful and making the dog yelp and, and run and, and panic. I just want it to be uncomfortable enough that the dog says, oh, I don't like that. And I want it to stop. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, yeah. And then when you're saying about the, the, the stem, uh, that goes back to like toning it down instead of toning it up, <laughs> like bring yeah. it, bring it back to where it's just an, like you said, an aggravation like somebody tapping you on the shoulder. It's like your kid coming up and dad, 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 dad. Mm -hmm. Yes. What? Okay. And that's what you want is that behavioral change. Like from this to, Oh, yep. okay. Maybe I should, maybe I should do something else because I'm getting asked to. Yep. Um, but yes. And if we want to put it in behavioral terms, we can call it negative reinforcement that, you know, in order to get that annoyance to stop, they have to do what I want. Yep. So, you know, that, that stim is enough to annoy them, enough for them to say, I don't like that. I want it to stop. And then once they do the behavior I want, which is come to me, then the stim stops. Yeah. So let me get, give you guys some examples of, um, uh, 
misuse, and I don't let's say not let's let's not say misuse. Yeah, misuse. So if you're using stem and your dog freezes up because I've had this happen, so I'm telling on myself, and you get aggravated and you you start stemming higher, 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 and the dog just freezes because he don't know what to do. Then you got to tell yourself the dog's confused and he don't understand what I'm asking him to do. Or, like you said, Ariel, the dog runs and hides. He gets under the, the building or he gets under the dog house or he gets underneath the truck or, you know, he's confused. And you have to recognize that the dog does not understand. So the the foundation has got a hole in it somewhere. And that makes yep. sense? Yep, it does. Yeah. So we yeah. use the, the check cord and just to, we, to know the dogs are reliable. And then once we know the dogs are reliable, we add distractions. So that's kind of step two. We add the mm-hmm. distractions and we still want the dog to be reliable. But now to make the dog reliable, you may have to enforce that negative reinforcement which is the stem for the dog to make a decision that to do what mom asked me, it's better for me to do this. Cause I don't like this aggravating somebody poking on my shoulder or my neck until I do it. Mm-hmm. Right. Yep. Yeah. And then once we go from there, we can actually turn the dog off lead. And, you know, one of the things that I do in, canine training especially with my detection dogs because most of our detection dogs have no recall they have none and i feel like that's one of the most important things that they have to have um they slide out of the car on the side of the road and slip a lead or slip a collar or something happens i feel like you've got to be able to catch that dog and anyways Mm -hmm. so i'll go to a big enclosed field like a ball field a soccer field Mm -hmm. a baseball field um, and that way I can give them a little room, but at the same time, I can kind of control that too. Yep. Um, so and that, the dogs know when the leash is still on them. And mm-hmm. that's, that's always the hard part about the transition is they're not stupid. They know when they're dragging a leash around. So having a resource like that, that you can go somewhere that they feel like they're free, mm-hmm. but they're really not, they're still enclosed to where the only way to make the right choice is to come to you. And the only, the only way to, you know, if you're stimming them and they decide, "Eh, I'm going to run the opposite direction. Well, I can keep stimming you and I can keep annoying you and you can't go anywhere. If you're going to hit a fence and eventually realize, okay, if I'm, if I turn and move towards you, the stim stops. Mm -hmm. So I may as well just come towards you and stop trying to run away. Yeah. So why would I take that dog to a ball field instead of doing it in my yard? Um, you have a fenced yard. So you're, you're saying if you have a fenced yard, why do it mm-hmm. in a different environment? Yeah, I'm, mm-hmm. You know, cause the, the context, the dogs learn at home, mm-hmm. different rules apply than when they think they're out in the field or they think they're out somewhere new. And, you know, just, even if there's not anything going on in the ball field, there's different, there's different smells. It's a different context. It's a different environment. So the dog is going to be stimulated and, probably more likely to be disobedient versus in your yard where they're used to a routine and they kind of know, they know that there's already established boundaries there. Mm -hmm. Yes. And I think it's very important to change that environment. Um, I I mean, I, if I was going to do stuff like that, yes, I do it 
you know, I do it in my yard. Um, in fact, uh, yesterday I took my pups, the three puppies. I took Allie, Axe, and Attica. That was their first to say the trip to the big woods. I took them up on mm-hmm. the mountain. Um, I did not hunt. I just had them with me. I put their collar. I had, I've had their collars on them. So they knew, you know, they know the weight of the collar. They, they're not, you know, they, that's accustomed to them. I was a little worried about, um, actually driving them an hour away because they've not been in the truck an hour. Mm-hmm. Um, one of them actually did get sick and was slobbering all over the place. But when I got them out, I put the collars on them. I mean, they come off the tailgate when their feet hit the ground, bam, like, just normal. They was doing what they're supposed mm-hmm. to do. But to get back to what we're talking about, so I used that opportunity to work on the recall and and the uh tone. So I took a um bag of uh I've got these little packs of dog food that I get when I buy the my dog food. And mm-hmm. I took a pack of it with me and I'd let the dogs get out of sight and I'd give them a few minutes and I would holler tone and i actually posted on go wild y'all know go wild sponsors us i posted a picture of those dogs running down the road to me and i'd done that a handful of times i didn't overdo it um probably five or six over a period of four three four four hours i would take them to a different location let them out of the truck let them wander around let them go through the woods um, so I just took them to different pl- places on the mountain and every time they were out, I worked on the recall and not mm-hmm. once did I have an issue with them not listening, but we had done our foundation work here and mm-hmm. the dogs were very reliable on the recall already. Now, mm-hmm. when I start adding those distractions in, um, they had new odors and stuff that they were working with um, yesterday. Um, but I, I didn't, ha- I mean, for all five or six times, how many of it was that I recalled them, like they literally would almost knock your feet out from underneath you getting to you. Yeah. So I know, like, I'm very pleased with that. Like, I know that it's, it's, it's a good solid foundation for them. There's a couple of things you mentioned uh, that I just wanted to, I guess, reiterate, you said you didn't overdo it with them. And I think that is important. Um, I find when I explain more so with, with hunting dogs or dogs that you want to have some independence, um, you don't want to recall them every time they get X distance away from you or every time they start smelling something, because you do want the dogs to have the independence to go out and search away from you and, and not anticipate, Oh, every time I get 50 yards away, you're going to call me because then they're going to start automatically coming back when you don't want them to. So, you know, you said you, you let them sniff, you let them explore, and then you would call them randomly. Mm -hmm. And, and that's how I prefer to do it too, is, uh, I'm not just doing constant recall after recall after recall. I'm just doing it randomly. So let them realize, Hey, it's okay if you want to go sniff and explore and play, but sometimes I might call you and, if you come back to me, there's good stuff here. Um, so that was one of the points. And then I think the other thing too is, you know, not everyone gets their dogs as puppies, but I think if the earlier you start this, the more ingrained it becomes. Um, you know, I, I try and start all of my dogs, whether they're the hounds or the Malinois with recalls really young. 
so that way it's almost automatic. They just hear their name or they hear tone. And before they're even thinking about doing something else, their body is moving them in mm-hmm. your direction. Um, so I, you know, I know that's not possible for everybody if they get a dog that's a year or two years old and doesn't have a recall they have to work with a dog that has learned that the world is more exciting but uh it's it's golden if you do have puppies and you're starting with puppies recall would be the first thing i would would teach just to get that uh get that so ingrained in them that you don't have to use a ton of pressure because they they just want to come back to you because they've practiced it so much it's a habitual behavior mm-hmm. yeah and I, like i said i feel very fortunate they so far like i said they're they're at that um they're at that adolescent stage where they are into everything but um following up on what you just said ariel i i see that a lot in dog training itself you said it i'm gonna say it again is people overdo it um like the dog don't get out of sight here dog i mean even with my canine guys when we're teaching the recall for them i mean you know it's like the dog gets 10 foot come here dog gets 10 foot come here and then all of a sudden the dog don't want to go past 10 foot because he knows that he's not going to be allowed to um Mm -hmm. so yeah i like to let the dogs wander and i like it to be random i don't i don't want them to know that i'm gonna recall them i want them out doing their thing and doing whatever and then you know all right guys come on let's go and then you know i want i want them to to come to me. So, yep. I see that in a lot of dog training across the board, not just us, mm-hmm. but yeah. So, all right. So let's flip it over to, this is where the confusion comes in. I feel like some of the questions that I received was talking about the tone and correction. And, mm-hmm. st- and I want you to break it down and tell the difference in you know, the two different applications, the recall, if you're going to use a tone for recall, it's for recall. You can't mm-hmm. use the tone for barking in the pen and tone the dog. And then the next thing you know, the dog don't be quiet. And then you start adding stem mm-hmm. because that's two different applications. Correct. Yep. Yes. All right. So break it down. So essentially using the tone in that context, you're using it as a no button. So instead of the tone meaning come to me, the tone means stop whatever you're doing because it's, if you don't stop, something bad's going to happen to you. Um, you absolutely can use it for that. But as you said, if you've already taught the, do- the dog that tone means to come, now you're confusing them because, well, sometimes it means come back to me and sometimes it means stop whatever you're doing or you're in trouble. Um, so I, I like to call it a no button. I think that mm-hmm. it makes it the, that's the, the clearest explanation. Um, so if you would prefer to use the tone as a no button, then disregard everything we've talked about teaching it as a recall. And you essentially just pair it with stim when the dog is doing something you don't like. So the dog is, and, and you have to be careful about this. So uh, let me preface this by saying, you may think you're communicating something to the dog and the dog may be getting the wrong message. So you might see the dog, um, trying to think of a good example. Yeah, um, in the trash. Yeah. Okay. So the dog might be looking like he's going to stick his head in the trash 
at the same time the dog is milling around the trash can, another one of your dogs may be walking up next to him. So you press tone and stim thinking you're correcting the dog for putting his head in the trash. Mm-hmm. While the dog is actually noticing this other dog walking up to him, the message he gets is that dog that's walking up to me just shocked me or, you know, just corrected me. Yeah. And, you know, and, and I've seen I've seen people talking about wanting to use the stem for um, dogs doing something stupid at the tree or doing something in the box or maybe just barking. And you have to make barking is probably a big one, too, because. The dog is barking and you want to correct the dog for barking, but the dog is looking at something while he's barking or he's smelling something while he's barking. So now he's getting the message that whatever he's looking at or smelling at is what's smelling is what's correcting him. So when you're using the, the tone followed by the stim as a no button, you need to, to try and isolate those variables and make sure the dog is getting the message that the behavior you're doing is what's causing it. So, you know, the dog jumps up on me, I press tone and then I press stim and then pull the dog down with the leash. The dog jumps up again, tone, stim, pull the dog down with the leash. The dog starts to understand that, okay, every time I jump on you, I hear that tone, then I get stim, which is uncomfortable. And then my feet go back down on the ground and when my feet are on the ground, everything's fine. As soon as I put my feet back up on you, the discomfort starts again. So you have to both pair tone with stim and make sure that your timing is such that the dog gets the right message. It's, it's cause and effect. You know, I touch the hot stove and it burns my hand. So I pull it away. Um, I hear, trying to think of like some, some kind of audible tone that lets you know something bad is about to happen. Um, I can't think of a good example. I'm not a good analogy person, but well, um, fire alarm. Yeah. So yeah. that's, yeah, that's a more extended example, mm-hmm. but exactly. So I hear the fire alarm go off and I start to see smoke and I realize I better get out of this room before I, I get lit on fire. So that tone is telling the dog something's about to happen that you don't like. So you better stop whatever you're doing. Yep. Um, did you it's think a that's warning. A it's a warning yeah. I mean, yeah, that's what exactly. it is. It's a warning. Yep. Here you go. So yeah, we just want to, we just want to make sure that, that people don't confuse, um, that if you're going to use it as a warning system, it's not, you're confusing the dog if you're trying to use it as tone and a warning. So if you're going to use it as a warning, use it as a warning. In fact, I have, um, a dog that barks in my kennel and y'all probably heard me talk about it and that's what I'm using for him. I don't use it for his recall. I don't. Mm-hmm. I use I use it as a warning. Um, so there's two applications, and just make sure that there's no you're not overusing the tone for multiple applications because during that process you are causing major confusion for the dog. Then that's when you get the behaviors of hiding and running underneath the car and running away or freezing up because the dog does not understand why this is being applied. Mm-hmm. So do you think that covers it? I think so. I, I and as always, I, I think we're both available on the in the Facebook group. Uh if they're 
if our explanation wasn't thorough enough, uh, maybe we can figure out a way to make it more thorough. But I think that covers the difference between the two. And I can understand why there was confusion last time, because we were only talking about one application of the tone. Mm, that's right. Um, whereas... The tone is a neutral sound to the dogs until we give it meaning and we decide if we want it to mean come back to me or if we want it to mean no, stop what you're doing. Otherwise, the stim is going to come. So that's that's on the individual, how they want to apply it in their particular situation. And, you know, like you said, you choose to do it different depending on the dog. What what works for one dog is different than what works for another. Mm-hmm. Because I, I don't want to be so. I, and the reason I'm using it differently for him is um, I, I did not raise this dog. This dog come to me at six, seven months old. Um, he barked in the kennel. So I put a barking collar on him um, right off the get go. And I very quickly realized that as the as the barking collar went up in stimulation, it put him over the top. So basically his behavior got worse and worse and worse because of the amount of pressure. So what he was doing is he was started to spin and then he started um, barking and it just caused, it just caused a lot of different behaviors that I was unwanted. So I realized Mm -hmm. through my training that, Hey, he can't handle this. He don't process this. You got to do something different. So I moved him up here. Um, I have two different sets of kennels. I have some up towards my house and then I have some away from my house so I brought him up towards the house so I could keep an eye on him and, and watch and listen. And I ended up putting the regular, um, the Garmin 550 Pro or Tritronics, whatever you call it now, on him, which has a tone. And that way I can regulate the amount of stimulation. So I started toning him in the beginning, and he would do that head turn and look when he would bark. You know, I'd tone him and he'd stop. Mm-hmm. And then I worked it into, I would tone in a very light stimulation. Um, the Tritronics is different than the Dogtra, so you can't like fine tune it. Um, but I'm hitting him on three on low. That's very low stem. You can hold it on your arm and take it. But mm-hmm. that's all it took for me to correct that behavior. And I'm using, I use the tone as his warning when I, Tone, that means stop barking. And right now, I'm about 85, 90% when I hit the tone, it's done. Mm-hmm. Don't even bark no more. So that's why I choose to choose to use that for, you know, I couldn't use the method that I normally use because it was driving him into a red state and he didn't have a clear mind. And when they don't have a clear mind, you can't get them to yep. learn anything. Yeah, I know it's a little bit of a digression, but I think it's an, something that could be interesting, important, and important to touch on is, you know, why the bark collars don't work for every dog. And, and you've just laid it out that some of them can't make the connection between their barking is making the stim happen. And even if like, as that level gets higher, the dog is getting distressed by the stim, mm-hmm. but they haven't made the connection in their mind that something they're doing is making it happen. So they start to act out more and they, you know, they get overstimulated because in their mind, the stim is just happening randomly and they can't figure it out. So by you using the tone and him being able to, in a lower state of 
stress and arousal be able to process, oh, when I bark, I hear that noise. When I bark, I hear that noise. Then when you did add stim, he had a clear understanding of his bark was connected to that noise. And now that noise is connected to the stim. And then he could make that connection that, oh, if I don't want to feel that stim, I should shut up when I hear that tone. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I've, I've worked with a lot of pet dogs um, that may have worn electric fence collars or bark collars and they never really fully understood the stim or, you know, I've put bark collars on dogs that they just couldn't make that connection and turning it up. Some dogs just, you know, they need a higher level because they, they'll bark through a low, lower level, but mm-hmm. some, some just can't make, they can't connect those dots in their head and turning it up doesn't help them connect it anymore. It actually makes it worse. So I think that's a, you know, a good, uh, good point to, emphasizes also might have to change your way of thinking if the bark collar doesn't work the way it should. Yeah. And and the reason I'm able to pick that up is through my training on the law enforcement. I mean, I'm sure a lot of these hunting guys can pick it up right off the get go, but Mm -hmm. you know, I wouldn't have really realized that I wouldn't have realized that if I haven't been through some of the training I had and seen how the different effects on the dogs, um, and like mm-hmm. I said, I, it's like you said, I pick, you know, it, it wasn't working. It wasn't going to work. And I just changed it over and adapted a little bit and it, it's working fine. So mm-hmm. that should clear up the tone issue. Yep, um, hopefully. Yep. So let's talk a little bit about, we call it a call off. So when I send my dog downfield to engage a decoy or a sus- suspect, um, we have to call the dog off, which means I tell him to out and come back to me, or I can do a um, just a, a down, and he can guard the person. So the reason we bring this up is I've had a few questions about um, bringing the dogs away from the tree, and I thought this would be a great time, since I have you on here, to pick your brain and um, see how you feel about it. I, ha- I have some thoughts myself, and I th- prob- mm-hmm. I'm going to say probably off the cuff that you and I are probably on the same page yeah. um, with this. But the difference in – no, let's go through it. So the call-off. So I'm, I'm in, and I've got a bear tree, <laughs> and I'm going to bring – I'm going to – I mean, the last uh, two trees – yeah, the last two trees I've been to, I've been in by myself. Um, and I'm, like I told you guys earlier, I'm toting six dogs around. So I got six dogs to bring out of there. Okay. Mm-hmm. I don't like leading dogs at all. I don't like it. And I think a lot of guys don't like it. Um, but what I do myself is I tie my dogs back and I will get my dogs back away from the tree. Um, 50, hundred yards. Um, it depends. It depends if they've had a really long race and they've had to, They've walked this bear and they're actually sitting in the lowest limb and the dogs are really, 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 really excited. Or the dog, the bear's sitting up 60 foot up in the nosebleed section. Um, the leaves are on and it's not as stimulating. It still is stimulated, but not as much. You know, I, you got to know the difference. So I like to get my dogs back, you know, 50, 100 yards, 150 yards. And then I cut them loose and we go to the, we go to the truck. 
So the question is about stemming them or toning them. We go back to the tone off the tree. <coughs> How do you feel? What do you think? Just give me your give me your input. So personally, I don't. We have not tried to call our dogs away from the tree with with tone or verbal backed up with stem. Um, and my feeling is where the dogs are in such a high level of drive at that point. And because we're not training bears every day, multiple times a day, it's always going to be so incredibly exciting. You know, I feel like if we were training bears every day, maybe, maybe multiple bears in, <clears throat> in one day, the dogs would kind of be like, okay, you know, th this is great, but you know, we just did it a few hours ago or we just did it yesterday. And the stimulation level might come down, but for only hunting however many months, you know, three-ish months out of a year in Virginia, I mean, we do go into West Virginia to, to try and train some as well, but um, let's, let's say we have four months to, to hunt and that's not hunting every day. Um, I just don't feel like it's fair to let the dogs get in such a high level of drive and then either one, expect them to be obedient to the tone mm -hmm. or two, feel like I'm now going to back up their lack of obedience with stim. Um, because as I talked about, they're just so, so keyed up that they, they may not even be processing that I'm calling them or toning them. Like they hear it, but their mind is somewhere else. And then I start stimming them and now are they understanding they're getting stimmed for not being obedient or are they thinking for some reason that tree just became electrified or, you know, that dog next to them is, is causing the stim or, you know, the looking at the bear is, is causing the stim. I don't want them to have a negative association with being at that bear tree um, because I'm trying to enforce obedience that I haven't laid the groundwork for. So if I, if I was able to control the bear, and control the variables where I could somehow train it so the dogs were in progress, start off in a low state of drive and then progressively increase to a higher state of drive, teaching them how to come away from the bear and come away from the tree without being overstimulated. And not, I, I don't, I don't like to have to rely on e-collar to make the dog do something that I haven't taught properly. So I feel like the the way that we've been hunting and the the number of bears we've been treeing and just what we're trying to encourage in our dogs, I feel like it would be counterproductive to then stim the dogs for not being obedient. Right now, I want those dogs to think chasing that bear up the tree is the most awesome thing and only good things happen when they've got the bear up the tree. And I can clip leashes on them and do as you said, I can walk them away. And then once I get them far enough away that they start to, their brains kind of come back into, <laughs> their brains start to clear up and they have mm -hmm. more clarity and more focus. And I can see that they're kind of more in tune with me. And I can use my obedience because now I've, I've got their, their minds back. Um, you know, I just, I think I run the risk if I try and call them off the tree, I run the risk of de, uh, discouraging a behavior that I do want. And I make them maybe wary of 
they might get stimmed at the tree. Um, and I don't want them thinking about that right now. Um, you know, maybe down the road as they get more experience and, uh, they, they mature more and I feel like they're, they're working the way that we want and they're striking tracks and training bears every time we go out, then I'm worrying more about handle and see if it's even something that matters. But for me, it's just, I think it's not too difficult for me to hook a leash on it and walk them away, as you said. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just and, for you know, a I know short distance. Yep. I know there are some people that have no problem calling their dogs away from the trees. Um, I think you have to evaluate your own dogs. And yes. I know our dogs are, yeah, our dogs are pretty sensitive to, um, you know, even just a verbal correction, you know, we tell them no. And they're like, hmm. you know, I mean, when they're in drive, they're not as sensitive, but mm-hmm. I, I don't want to run the risk of them thinking they're doing something wrong when they're training a bear. Yeah. And I, I think, you know, just as I'm listening to you talk, like there's several thoughts going through my head. Um, the first thought is, if the dogs are treed and they're intense and they're at that high level of stimulation, which is their prey drive, um, they're probably not in a clear mind. They're in, they're in that, you know, I got to catch, catch, catch. Mm -hmm. So the learning process is, is really not a lot going on there. Um, so if I call my dogs off the tree, I wouldn't even think about, you know, unless you've worked at this and done this, the tone, um, because the tone's probably not going to work. And then, you know, then I'm going to have to go into the stimulation and how much stimulation am I going to have? And then I kind of worry about, you know, diminishing the drive. Um, like you said, do I have a dog that's a weaker tree dog? Um, that if I do this two or three times to him and he doesn't understand the next time you go to a tree, he don't want no part of it, mm-hmm. you know, do I have a dog that is an overpowering tree dog and no matter what you do to him, you can't hurt him. You know, there's all different types of dogs. You know, we all know that, um, the dogs have different pain tolerances and this is basically what you're starting to do because you're going to have to amp it up to get their attention. Um, so I, I think about a couple of things and then I'm thinking about the coon hunters, you know, I think about the competition hunters that, will um, go tree a coon and then they turn around and they recast the dog um, that have, they have to take out of there. And I don't know how far these guys walk away from the tree. It may be 10 foot. It may be a hundred yards. I don't know. Um, but they turn around and they recast and then the dog flips around and comes back, back to the tree. And then they pull the dog off. They send him on a recast and when he comes back to the tree. You know, they start stemming him. Um, so in my mind, I'm kind of thinking, okay, is this teaching the dog that, um, you know, I'm only going to tree once. And if I tree really quick again, I'm going to get, you know, punished. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm kind of what, wondering what's going through the, the dog's head. And at, at the same time, I'm thinking, okay, so we have a coon in a tree and that stimulation level is not going to be as a bear sitting 10 foot above your head, smacking his jaws. Yep. The intensity is going to be different. Um, I feel like if I was coon hunting, that it would be easier for me to um, accomplish this in a pretty easy manner. And I'm not saying the dogs are indifferent or any, you know, I'm not saying weak or nothing like that. I'm not, I'm not saying that at, that at all. 
Um, I'm just saying that it's a different, if it's different levels of drive. Mm-hmm. Um, and I also, I mean, I don't know a ton about competition coon hunting, but it seems like there's multiple opportunities within a reasonable amount of time, you know, two, three hours there. It's not like they're out there and they're just training one coon mm-hmm. and it's this big event. It's like, okay, you know, multiple, you find one yeah. and then yep, you move. And I look at it as like a detection dog now obviously a detection dog is not finding a live animal so it's not quite as exciting but once your dog has the understanding of how to find and indicate on target odor then you teach them okay you can find one and then if you move away from that you might find another one Mm -hmm. and what i what i typically do is if the dog goes back to the first one i don't correct them i just say okay good boy good girl but come on let's move on and eventually they realize, well, I can keep going back to this and I'm not getting anything else. And then as soon as they move off and they find another one, they get their primary reward. So, you know, and, and they learn pretty quickly how that works. Okay, I get, I find it, I get rewarded once, and now I have to go find a second one. And, you know, I've gotten to the point where I can put multiple, like I can do a bone scatter for my cadaver dog and in a maybe a 10 foot by 10 foot square there can be 10 bones on the ground and she will go from one to the next to the next or she would she's not alive anymore but um so i I feel like with with coon hunting maybe because there's more opportunities to tree animals in faster succession and you know they don't have to there's not hours in between trees that Mm -hmm. Uh, they have the opportunity to train it and the dogs are a little bit more clear headed versus I feel like our, our bear dogs, it's, you know, I know you guys tend are have situations where you will train multiple bears in a day, but my, my understanding talking to you is it, there's still usually a long period of time between each bear. Um, and it kind of becomes its own separate event for the dogs versus a continuation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That, and, and yeah, and I, and I want to roll this back around to, our, to to the law enforcement side on the recall, yep. because what you're saying is what makes it so much different. I can go into a training session and work on this multiple times, multiple times a day, mm-hmm. and within a 30 day period, I may have, you know, I may have recalled, worked my dog off, um, the recall. I mean, 150 times. You know, I don't, I don't make 150 trees in a season, yep. you know, so there's a, there's difference there. Um, and, you know, I just want the, the listeners to understand that, you know, you got to break this down a little bit um, and, and kind of think about what you're doing and what you want to accomplish. Um, and I'm going to tell you a, a hack. An old timer taught me this and I've actually had it um, not work out so good and, I've actually had some couple incidences with it, but this is something I'll, I'll tell you about it and you can try it and use it if you need it. You know, we, you and I talk, you know, me and Cameron had talked, uh, dogs learn so much from other dogs. Mm-hmm. Um, and what I do is if I have a young dog that I'm trying to teach to, to, to walk out of the woods with me and not go back to that tree a lot of times, I'll and I, I carry a double. I carry a couple double couplers with me, um, 
and I'll get away from the tree and I'll hook that young dog with one of my old dogs and double couple it. And the old dog knows what to do. The old, old dog knows to come with me. And the young dog may fight against him a little bit, but then he realizes after a couple, you know, three or four, five of those trees that, hey, okay, so this is what, this is what the pack's doing, so I need to do it with the pack. And then all of a sudden, I'm not even having to apply pressure at all. Mm-hmm. I don't have to use stem. I don't have to worry about the dog going back. Um, the old dog has done the teaching for me. Um, but an old-timer told me that, showed me mm-hmm. that, and I guess I've been doing it for 20 years now um, that a lot of times when I'm teaching the young dogs, I just take a double coupler. Now, here's the problem. Let me tell you the bad. That was the good. (laughs) I have been coming out of the woods several times, and this was before we had the Garmin's and had the the tone and and the stimulation on the collars. This was back when we had the old beep beep collars. I've had my old dog strike coming out of the woods and drag them young dogs to about, it was bad. Mm-hmm. If they hadn't have slipped a collar, I would have probably, it would have probably been a bad situation. So that's something that you have to understand and you have to, you know, un, you know, listen, when you're coming out of the woods and you have them tied together and one of them hits a red hot track, you know, it's going to go. Mm-hmm. Um, so, that's that's some of the bad that's happened with me doing that over the, the years. But, um, yeah, I mean, I like I said, I, I don't like leading dogs, um, you know, especially the terrain that we hunt in. I know a lot of these guys hunt rough stuff. And, you know, the guys out west, you know, they very seldom lead dogs. I mean, they're hunting off horseback and, you know, mm-hmm. hunting up these canyons. And when they get to the tree, you know, they're like, come on, Joe, let's go. You know, and their dogs just come with them. You know, I'm kind of envious. Um, yeah, it makes me think, you know, we talk about, well, we don't want to do this because they're, you know, fall out. We don't want the dogs to have this association. But yeah, I mean, if I was riding a mule or on a horse, I wouldn't be leading dogs by leash. So mm -hmm. they'd have to learn it. Uh, you know, maybe that just comes down to, you know, your dog selection. And if you have a dog that can't handle the pressure of being called off the tree and maybe corrected, then that dog's not going to be one that works in your pack. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think that with the tone, um, with the recall, with the, the tone, meaning no, the, the correction, it's a warning for the correction. You know, we've talked about the, the, we call it a call off because we have to call our dogs off the decoy and, Mm um, same thing with the tree and your game, you know, just, just watch your dog's excitement level, understand what state of mind he's in. And, you know, I, I have a, um, a guy that I know that he will not, he will not lead a dog away from the tree and he stems a lot because the dogs don't want to leave the tree. And I just grit my teeth and bite my tongue and shake my head. Um, I have mentioned two or three times that, Hey, you may want to do this or do that. And, um, it never gets changed. So, just think about it. Just, just we just giving you just some things to think about. Um, hopefully, that'll help you with, um, you know, making a better pack, making it more enjoyable, and um, just just making things better for for you and your hounds. Mm-hmm. Ariel, anything you want to add to those? 
Some, I, I'll try not to digress too much, but something else I thought of when you're talking about, you know, having to stim the dogs repeatedly. The other thing I don't want is the dogs to associate me walking up with something bad happening. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. You know, I don't want to like them hear me coming and think, oh, we're going to get called away and corrected and have them start leaving the tree because of the pressure that they associate with me. Um, mm-hmm. I want to be able to walk up and pat my dogs and pet them and, and hook up the leash without having to, to chase them down. And plus I don't want them leaving the tree and letting the bear down. Um, so I think, you know, that's the other thing, not only could they associate the pressure with being at the tree and, and looking at the bear, but they could also associate with every time and we see this with police dogs, every time my handler walks up, I get corrected or I get pulled away. Um, or I, you know, I get stimmed. I don't, I don't want that association either. I want to be able to walk up and have my dogs happy that I'm at the tree with them. And it's a team sport and we're all there together to, to get the bear. So, mm-hmm. um, something else to consider too, that, you know, and I think these are things that people can look at and see if they see fallout, you know, if they're calling their dogs off the tree and, and they're happy with the performance and the dogs don't seem stressed or pressured, then they're obviously doing something right. If the dogs seem like they're a little hesitant to tree or, they back off when you walk up, then maybe you should think about what you're doing. And if, if you're causing those behaviors that you don't like. Right. That's, no. that's all I had to add. No, no I, it's good information. Like I said, I appreciate your time. And I mean, I always enjoy, you know, like breaking things down and, you know, bouncing stuff off each other. Um, I mean, I, I always enjoy the conversation and hopefully you guys can get down and, man, we can run some dogs and eat good food and have a good time. Yep. Looking forward to it. Hopefully we can set that up sometime in the not too distant future. Yeah. The near, maybe it'll cool down a few degrees. Yeah. The sooner, the better, right? Yep. 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 Ariel, I really appreciate your time sitting down with us and going over this stuff and, you know, just talking dogs. Like, you know, I could, I could talk dogs for hours. Um, and I could talk a lot about a lot of different things about dogs, but I always enjoy learning and hearing about different things. And I, you know, I, I appreciate your knowledge. Um, and, and I really appreciate you being on and, and talking to us. And I hope to see you and um, Taylor here in, a, in the short, in the near future. And I always appreciate the opportunity to pick your brain and mm-hmm. gain some knowledge and share what, what I know from my background. So thank you for having me on again. All right. So Ariel, thank you for helping us find a way to teach, train, and learn.